Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. The Meiji Restoration was one of the great success stories of the Industrial Age, seeing Japan transform in a few decades from a completely feudal society into one that rivaled the most advanced nations of the day. Today, we'll look at what exactly the Restoration went about restoring, as well as why such dramatic change happened in such a stable society. Let's begin. Alright, I'm here on HI101 with James Mitchell. How's it going? Great, how are you? I am so excited to do this topic. Yeah, so am I. Excellent. So today we're going to be talking about the Meiji Restoration, which is a really, really big subject. Like, it, it's it's a really short amount of time. We're only looking at about 50 years or so. But at the same time, the amount of change that it encompasses is a little bit overwhelming. So organizationally, this, can be, this could be a little bit interesting, but we'll do what we can. And awesome. uh, yeah, should be very, very good. I think that to talk about something like the Meiji Restoration or, or any sort of restoration or revolution or whatever, we kind of have to talk about where we start from. Um, that's really the only way to, to do it. So let's talk a little bit about what they call the Edo period, or um, it's also known as the Tokugawa Shogunate. We're going to get into a lot of Japanese words, so please ask for clarification if you need it. I was going to say, I think I'm going to need a pencil yeah. at some point for this. <laughs> so, the Edo period. Edo is uh, is an old name for Tokyo. Edo was a small port uh, city, but it was also the seat of the Tokugawa family. Now, the Tokugawa family uh, held a position known as the, as the shogun. Of, of Japan, which loosely translates to general, like a supreme general kind of thing. What happened there is that the emperor of Japan was ceremonial for centuries before where we're talking. And uh, it was very much a feudal society. It, and it was very similar to European feudalism. So you have a, a landholding lord, they're called daimyos in, uh, in, in Japanese. And there was like fierce infighting in Japan. So in the year 1600, there was a war of unification under which the, the emperor at the time basically delegated all administrative power to a shogun or a supreme general who was uh, responsible for all government over all of the daimyos, the, the landholding lords. So Tokugawa shogunate just refers to kind of basically like a dynasty of, of about uh, 250 years, running from 1600 to uh, the 1850s, where the Tokugawa family was running Japan. That was a lot of explanation for what feels like should be a simple 
concept, but here we are. That's kind of the story of the Meiji period. Awesome. Uh, what to say about Edo Japan? The the thing that's the thing that I find most fascinating about Edo personally is that it was an incredibly static society, and this was by design. They wanted nothing to change, and they were actually really really successful at it. So there was this movement in Japan, fifteenth sixteenth centuries called Neo Confucianism. Now, do you know much about Confucianism at all? Um, a little bit. I did take one course on. Eastern history. I'm using air quotes for those who was it like a first year kind of? No, it was actually a third year sort of specialty course on modern China. Sure. And you know it was a fascinating course, but it was pretty much my first and sadly only real uh, exposure to to Asian history or at least East Asian history. I think that's actually worth talking about because I've I've really had uh, a similar experience with uh, you know going through school with history is that you know there's there's a I mean, we're we're in Canada. We're from a European background, generally speaking, societally speaking, and and there's a huge focus on European history until you get to a point in your education where you decide to specialize. At which point, you could choose something other than European history, but really, you don't get the same sort of broad sense of history that you do from either the survey level courses or just from uh, society as a whole, as you do with you know, with European history, mm-hmm. you know, people have a, a vague idea, at least of the progression for, of, of Europe over the past several thousand years, but ask someone to sketch out in a couple of very vague sentences, what has happened in China the past thousand years. I mean, yeah. I don't feel confident doing it. Absolutely. Not to mention people, you know, being able to talk about South America, um, mm-hmm. even in the 20th century, yeah. uh, or India in the 19th century, yeah. people seem to think that as soon as the Portuguese and the British arrived. That's what it started. That's when history that's, started. That's when history for them. starts. Yeah, absolutely. Why not? <laughs> they were all just sitting around waiting for something to happen. Exactly. Yeah. The other thing I notice um, is, I, I mean, you and I went to university together. That's how we met. And I find that people who have gone through history courses at a at a post secondary level are a lot less willing to admit that they know anything about anything, especially when it comes to non European topics, because. I mean, you took an entire course at a third year level on, um, what, what did you say, East Asian studies? It was, uh, or... it was just a course on modern China, which sadly okay. only dealt from like the Opium Wars mm-hmm. to pretty much... So when like, the British showed up. Yeah, when the British showed up, <laughs> which I did allude to earlier, yep. pretty much from then until sort of uh, the opening of China in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. Okay, so... I mean, despite taking that course, which would definitely touch on a lot of the things that we're going to talk to today, you would probably be more reluctant to admit to knowing much of this stuff than a lot of people that I've talked to on this show, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. I mean, it's sort of an awareness of the scope of history that's sort of outside your comfort or familiarity. Yeah. I find it interesting that you, you probably know a chunk more about Confucianism than the average person, and yet, like really backed off as soon as I mentioned it. Yeah, I mean, there's content and then there's also context, right? Absolutely. But I, I think to take it back to the point we were talking about earlier, mm-hmm. my knowledge of, of Japan and Japanese society is mm-hmm. so much ingrained in sort of how Japan fits into the model of the West mm-hmm. and how it doesn't fit into the model of the West, which is a very modern construct. Sure. So sort of from that perspective, I think I have a difficult time thinking about Japan independently, mm-hmm. which is part of sort of that Eurocentric attitude. We can't think of these other these other societies unless we're thinking about them in terms of contact. And 
one of the most ironic things about Japan as a subject is that the entire restoration that we're going to talk about isn't just an internal one. It's as much about contact with the West and how to react to that as it is uh, any internal forces that are going on. Mm. So despite, you know, I think you and I through through training and through a number of other reasons are, are really quick to try and, and, you know, isolate things from that that context or, or, or do our best to sort of try and understand it um, for what it is and not just for how it relates to other things. Despite all of that, we have to relate it to Western society at that point in time, or else there's no way we can possibly understand what's about to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so absolutely. That absolutely. was, that was it's a little a, it's frustrating a bit of a, parabo- a paradox, but... Yeah, yeah. It was a little bit frustrating going through where it's kind of like, I want to just like really focus on what's happening in Japan. Well, you can't. You have to look at what's going on, mm-hmm. not only in East Asia at this point in time, but what's going on in the West and how that relates to them. So anyways, we'll get to all that good stuff. Uh, we were talking about neo-confucianism confucianism just like in a very broad subject in a very broad sense is a lot more about someone's duty to society than it is about individualism right i mean i don't want to get into a whole discussion about confucianism but it's it's based on buddhist teachings neo-confucianism really the only big difference is that they sort of removed the buddhist aspects of it and tried to make it a more humanist system so it ended up actually having sort of communist undertones to it where it was very much like it's best for the individual to find his place in society where he can best contribute and that's that's how a a well-functioning society works i think it's really interesting when you talk about people's role in society because when you talk about fascism Mm -hmm. uh, the word that's used there is subsuming Mm -hmm. and so the individual subsumes to the collective Okay. Uh, so it's really interesting that you're mentioning that because that whole idea, uh, subsuming and fascism, mm-hmm. and then tying that into Confucianism makes a lot of sense to me. Okay. Um, because, because of your, of, subje- your, your because study of, of well, that subject, and also because of Jap- Japan's future, mm-hmm. um, sort of in the in the nineteenth, uh, going from the nineteenth century to the twentieth century. Sure, and I, I it and and like just just for for clarity's sake, how would you define subsuming? I think that uh, when we talk about subsuming. It's the individual putting aside, you know, his or her idea of how to participate and listening to what authority is telling them to do. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I think that, I mean, in a very modified form, uh, this, this, is, this is quite similar. But with Confucianism, there's a lot of ideas that, especially because it comes out of Buddhism originally, there's a lot of this idea that there's no social mobility. So the Edo period saw a society with four levels. And these were based on Confucian ideals of how one contributes to the society. And it's actually really interesting because it completely takes what we would think of a feudal society's sort of levels being and kind of flips them on their head a little bit. Um, Interesting. At the top, you have the samurai, so the fighting class, but also uh, the spiritual class. So they were protectors, but they were also moral guides for the rest of society. They were administrators. They were the government. Those guys are always at the top. That's never going to change in any situ- in any situation. The next one down is peasants. And the peasants were second because they produce food. And without food, you die. Food is essential to a society. And food production is essential to society. The third level is artisans who produce non-essentials. So, you know, the, the, the people who are weaving silk, the people who are making clothes, the... Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the construction workers, the, the you know, any anything on that level where you're making things, but it's not things that people need on a subsistence level. That's your third level. And finally, the fourth level is the merchants. 
because it, it was seen as though those people were basically leeching off of society. They were creating wealth for themselves without actually producing anything uh, constructive. Interesting. Yeah, I, I thought that was really interesting. What you get with these levels is a complete segregation of society, at least under the under the Edo period, under the Tokugawa shogunate, because what they did was basically say, okay, peasants, you grow food, you need to be out in, in the country. Everyone else is going to be within uh, an urban setting. So you have the administrators, the samurai, um, you have the artisans who are living in an urban setting because they don't need fields and fields to be practicing the craft. And the merchants, while they're just going from uh, population center to population center anyways, they might as well be segregated within these walls as well. And what that created was actually a really rapid urbanization of Japan, much earlier than you would see in a traditional feudal setting where just about everyone is peasants and the peasants have it worst. And really what it meant to be a peasant was owing your life to a landlord and scraping a subsistence from the earth while trying to pay your taxes, right? The, these, these peasants have it much better off. Now, ideally, again, under the, under the system, you should have these four classes, each of whom are displaying a level in society that's like reflective of their, you know, their, their place, one, two, three, four, in this system. So not only would they have to sort of display this 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 ranking in society through you know their their location or through their craftsmanship but also sort of like their their demeanor their, the way they carry themselves in society so it, it, it creates a very stratified uh, stratified like honorific system mm-hmm. so if you're speaking to someone higher or lower than you it's very apparent you're also supposed to demonstrate it outwardly in your appearance so that's why the the you know, the governors at the top are supposed to look fancy because they are the fanciest. This is how it works. But what that meant is that they were trying to lock each strata into place economically. In order to prevent economic mobility? Yes. Okay. Which becomes a bit of a problem. Now, we'll get to that problem in one second, but I thought I'd just point out that the way that you measured the wealth of a daimyo is by the amount of food production of his land holdings. So you didn't measure the amount of gold that he had or the amount of um, material wealth in other ways. They actually ranked daimyos by koku. And a koku is a unit of rice. It's enough rice to feed one adult man for an entire year. Okay. So they would literally measure it by how much rice you grew. And the daimyos themselves were ranked top to bottom by the amount of koku they produced. So silver mines, doesn't matter. Silk production doesn't matter. That's really cool because it totally illustrates the point you made before about the peasants being the second most important Mm -hmm. social class. Yep, because they are the backbone of society. If people can't eat, they can't function on any higher levels. Mm -hmm. It's very Maslow hierarchy of needs sort of thing, but writ large in society, which is, you know, just just fascinating. But yeah, this this control kind of got a little bit out of hand uh, throughout the, the Tokugawa shogunate in things like they they uh, instituted a, a system that will probably sound a little bit familiar to you. It's called the Sunkin Kutai in uh, Japanese, but it's a residency program. Every daimyo was expected to keep two homes, one in their in their han, in their in their landholding, and one in Edo, where the shogun was was located. And they were expected to spend one year in Edo, one year in their han, one year in Edo, one year in their han. And when they weren't in Edo they were to leave their wives and children in Edo. This was entirely to centralize power 
uh, with the Shogun. Because essentially, whenever they're not in Edo, they have their wives and children as hostages, which kind of prevents people from thinking about rebellion. Mm -hmm. It also cripples them financially because they're expected to maintain two households. The other main major place that you see this in history is with Louis XIV and Versailles. He had basically exactly the same system worked out. Yeah, with all the nobles that wanted to, you know, they simultaneously wanted to be there in his court. Mm -hmm. And there was almost this compulsory component mm -hmm. of, of being in his court as well. Yeah, absolutely. Because there was almost no way to gain any sort of political power if you weren't playing that game. Mm -hmm. You could choose not to go in, in Versailles. Uh, but it wouldn't do you any favors. Absolutely. Um, the Sunking Kutai was much more compulsory. You didn't really have a choice about that one. It's a little bit more hand-fisted. But, you know, there was also control through uh, what was known as Bushido. It's the warrior's code for samurai. It became very codified, like their code of conduct in terms of like their behavior in society, uh, in terms of what it meant to be a samurai. So it, it was a very, like, almost almost spiritual code, but also very, like... If this happens, then you need to do this, and it did. It, it did a lot to keep the samurai, and and samurai were a, a warrior class. A daimyo would have a number of samurai under him that he would pay, usually like a, a fixed rate of the production of his, of his lands. They would be similar to uh, a knight in in European society, where mm -hmm. they don't necessarily own any of their own land, but they're beholden to a lord of some sort. Exact same thing. You also saw similar codes for other uh, levels of society on how they should conduct themselves. The the shogun sort of dictated contract law, who you were allowed to marry, how marriage ceremonies should look, levies rather than true taxes, which basically means that instead of paying a fixed rate at any, you know, every year you have to pay X percent of your production, they said, no, 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 no taxes, but we are building a new road this year and you should probably chip in on that. Mm -hmm. And there was always something every year. And by that, do you mean uh, like provided their own manual labor? Either that or financial support. This was more a way to keep any samurai from accumulating so much wealth that they could find themselves in a place where they could actually challenge the shogunate in any right. meaningful way. There were also uh, restrictions, say, each daimyo could only have one castle. So you couldn't build a whole bunch of castles on your han, again, restricting military power outside of the shogun. There was uh, a ban on Christianity. There had actually been Christian missionaries that had come to Japan in the 15th century. That's, that's one of the things I find most interesting about this period is that Japan had received Christian missionaries. Japan had received trade and ships from uh, various Western powers. They had received um, gunpowders and, and firearms from, from various countries. And they chose to put it all away for the Edo period. They cut off this trade. They restricted trade to just to an island off the, the Bay of Nagasaki, where they really only let the Chinese and the Dutch trade with them. But they weren't even allowed to come into Nagasaki proper they created an island, like they, they heaped up dirt in the middle of the harbor, which wasn't like true Japan. And they could come there to do their trade. And Christianity was banned and Japanese citizens were banned from leaving the, the islands. Hmm, interesting. Um, any Japanese citizens that left, I mean, there were, there were a couple of accounts of British sailors like picking up Japanese fishing vessels that had sort of washed out to sea during a storm, trying to drop them off back to Japan and authorities not allowing them to which is very extreme. But the thing you have to kind of remember and, and, and sort of put into context is that at the same time, 
you know, there's all these um, these Western powers that are creeping into the East that are having various amounts of influence on various regions. And, you know, Japan looking at this and going, I'm not sure how much I like this. And you're talking about in sort of the late 16th century? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So obviously by that point, there'd already been the Portuguese going to India mm-hmm. and yep. the Dutch... Portuguese and the Dutch were the big ones. There were also some British settler, uh, sailors coming through. And, you know, into the into the 17th century, they started seeing these things happening around the, uh, you know, the Southeast Pacific and, and really not liking what they were seeing in terms of Western influence. They, they saw these Western powers coming in as being kind of greedy and kind of pushy, which I don't, I, I, I don't I, yeah, I, I can't find a lot of fault for that assessment at that point in time. <laughs> Um, that's kind of reason- reasonable. So they, they just cut off the outside world. They went full uh, isolationist and said, listen, we've got this way of life figured out. We've got these four strata of society. We've got all these societal codes. We've got this, this government that's working well for us. We've got these, um, these spiritual institutions that are working well for us. Let's leave things as they are. It's working great. And for over 200 years, no wars. There were, there were virtually no famines. There was a period between 1720 and 1820 where there was zero population growth in Japan. The methods by which they managed to, to make that happen are a little bit suspect. I, I couldn't find any definitive reasons for that. There are suspicions that maybe there were there, there was some sort of um, famine at one point in that time that brought the population back down. There are you know questions about whether or not there were practices of infanticide or not. Or, or other means of, of artificially controlling the population, we're not sure. But there was a desire to not have the population grow? Yes. Okay. The thing, to, the thing that's really important to remember about Japan is that it is an island, and it is a big island, but it's got very finite resources, and they weren't unaware of that. There were programs that went into place where they were actually like reforesting areas that had become deforested because they recognized that, hang on, we don't have trees that will last us forever. It got to a point where you couldn't cut down trees without the explicit permission of your daimyo. That's quite interesting, given that in the same period, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> in the same period, we had uh, Western societies that were like, "Well, we're running out of resources. Let's go elsewhere to find them," <laughs> rather than than dealing with ways to actually manage what resources they actually have. It's kind of the complete opposite of, say, like Manifest Destiny in the United States. Right. Absolutely. And I think part of what that uh, goes back to is the Shinto religion. I'm not sure if you're at all familiar, but uh, there's there's very much this sense that there's a, a, a sacredness to everything, not just you know a, a couple of sort of distant deities up in the sky, but that like a, a river itself can have a spirit, and that that needs to be respected. I'm not trying to put all of this on on religious. Uh, reasons necessarily, but it, it certainly helps a society cultivate a solution to a problem like deforestation that involves reforestation rather than let's go take other people's forests. Yeah, I you mean, also, it was, it's almost like the first real manifestation of sort of like think local. Right? Mm-hmm. I think that if people, people at local levels, even currently, had the ability to uh, make the decisions that actually affected them where they actually lived, uh, you'd find that they would make decisions probably quite similarly to the way that the Japanese were during that period, mm-hmm. largely on account of the fact that 
that was their own survival at hand. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, I mean, you see reliance on fairly renewable crops like like rice um, or bamboo rather than widespread deforestation. You see reliance on fishing rather than livestock, Yep. which to this day is apparent in traditional Japanese diet, right? Like, I mean, oh man, sushi, it's so good. But it's all it's all fish. It's all fish. There was yeah. very. I, I mean, even even some of the meats that you see now, uh, or you think of now as being part of Japanese cuisine, is a fairly recent thing. I mean, they haven't been doing Kobe beef since the 1500s. That's a new thing that was brought in. So yeah, they were they were really looking to sort of like maintain this way of life. Um, the one other thing is that like there was a big there was a big focus on doing things well instead of doing things on a large scale they prefer quality craftsmanship in in anything and and i'm not just talking about you know woodworking or whatever but they would rather see someone run a really well-run small farm that like produced nicely and had very little waste than they would see someone just take massive fields that maybe doesn't get the best output but look at all of that rice that it puts out right yeah you're gonna see the same thing in in the Bushido, in the in the samurai code, where it, it, it's about cultivating a quality of, of skill within yourself rather than, you know, fighting as many battles as possible for experience. Right. Right. And and so that's 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 really big. It's a really big part of Neo-Confucianism is is quality and skill and and care and attention to detail rather than this sort of pushing out, you know, pushing beyond where we are now. Right. So that's the Edo period. As much as I can fit it into a nutshell, uh, I did a lot a of reading. Large that, nutshell. Uh, it's a very large nutshell. Did a lot of reading on this stuff. Is there anything like you're curious about the time period that maybe I didn't hit? Uh, because I know that we're hitting like a ton of stuff. I'm trying to encapsulate an entire society into a couple of minutes, I which feel is like impossible. If this, I feel like if this podcast were uh, were a survey course mm-hmm. on like modern Japan, mm-hmm. that was your first two lectures. <laughs> Oh goodness! It's already yeah. I I mean I, I I did my best. I'm sure if there's anything that that's relevant, we'll probably come back to it as we go on. Surely, yeah, we'll we'll figure that out as we get there. But uh, I I really just wanted to give a picture of you know when when we start looking at the 1850s when this whole system starts falling apart. You know what was it falling apart from? Because it's easy to kind of look at a revolution and say this is the interesting part. This is where this is where we start. This is the fun stuff. But if you don't have a good understanding of what it's coming from or where it's coming from, I, I think that's a really incomplete look at a societal change on that scale. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that goes for things as, um, you know, relatively painless as the Renaissance. And it goes for things as bloody as any of the violent revolutions of the 19th and 20th centuries. You, you really know where you, need, you really need to know where you're starting from. But yeah, Japan at this point in time it uh, it wants it, it feels like it's figured things out. Things are working well for it. It's very much a feudal, almost what you could describe as medieval society if you're judging it by Western standards. But by no means uh, lacking in progress. I mean, that's that's sort of where we're going to start from when we talk about the restoration. And I think this is probably a good spot to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll start looking at some of the cracks that start forming in this society that we just set up. All right, we're back on HI 101 here with James Mitchell. 
And uh, you were just asking me off air about basically the the uh, the relationship between the shogun and the um, and the emperor. So what I probably should have mentioned before, but we kind of got carried away, so that's okay. The shogun was nominally appointed by the emperor with a sort of a contract to look after anything. Um, administrative and administrative was there's there's a very specific word in Japanese for administrative here which basically means uh, has power to do basically everything government related okay so the emperor was still a a ceremonial role it was a a hereditary role very much like what you would see in it's actually very similar to the monarchy in England now in that it owns a lot of land so it's fairly wealthy there are religious duties involved with it but in terms of actual executive power, doesn't really have any or very, very little. Because if you make that sort of comparison, where could you come up with an example of another shogun Mm -hmm. where that also sort of follows through with a similar hereditary nature? That's a difficult one because the shogun, I mean, the shogun was not like, like, was theoretically appointed by the, the the emperor, but basically because the Tokugawa family had become so powerful in that unification wars that we had talked about very briefly earlier, they because they had so decisively played a role in that, basically every time a Tokugawa shogun died, the emperor just appointed the next one in line. Oh, okay. Well, that makes a lot more sense. So it wasn't that it was explicitly set out to be a hereditary post. No. It was more so that it just evolved into being one correct which i presume is going to lead us down the road to why this system had some problems absolutely well i mean i mean it's, it's indirectly related yes but the the shogun was the uh the daimyo of a very specific um han landholding um which had its seat in edo right that's why the center of government is going to be in edo that's why the shogunate's capital is in edo mm-hmm. because he's at the end of the day he's just a daimyo but he's a daimyo it, it, it would be similar to a prime minister it's as if the prime minister was appointed by the actual head of state and was always from the same riding. Yeah. You might as well just move the capital to that riding, <laughs> right? And, and that's that's sort of what you see happening here. So, yes, the Tokugawa shogunate was hereditary. And for all intents and purposes, it was sort of a, um, a side-by-side monarchy with the, the emperor in, in, in a lot of ways, except in like very specific... Uh, symbolic official ways where technically he didn't have to appoint that that person but he always did interesting he could have appointed any daimyo to be shogun for him but he didn't yeah he just kept going back to the Mm -hmm. same to the same place yeah very interesting and and that again that all goes back to these wars of unification uh um involving i don't know if you've ever heard of oda nobunaga uh, these wars of unification, you mean what precipitated the Edo in the first place? Correct, in the sixteen yeah. er, in the late fifteen hundreds. So. Okay. Um, anyways, that's that's a completely different podcast for another time. It's one of those things that is interesting if it was made into a movie. I don't know if it would be that interesting to sit and talk about for a couple of hours because it's mostly a bunch of battles. <laughs> you know, it's it, it's it's a war of unification. It's a bunch yeah, of daimyo fighting. That's fair. I mean, I'm by no means a military historian, so. Mm. I could uh, take a pass on that one, but thank yeah, you very I, much for I, the, I don't blame the you. formal invite. I don't blame you in the least. So, in July of 1853, uh, U.S. Commodore Matthew Perry sails four ships into Edo Harbor. 
he's stopped by a number of Japanese ships who say, uh, I'm sorry, you can't go here. Go to Nagasaki where we actually let foreigners come in and see if they'll let you in there because you're neither part of the Dutch East India Company or Chinese. So probably not even then. Commodore Perry sailed his ships right past, presented a letter to some, uh, some officials that came out to meet him, which basically said... In, in Japanese, because it, it, you know, it had gotten back through Dutch scholars, a little bit of Japanese anyways. And if you're the American government, you can get your hands on translations like Absolutely. this. Absolutely. It, it basically said, if you don't trade with us, we are going to attack you. And then he blew up a bunch of buildings on the shore, and then he sailed away. I'm just imagining this sort of being like Chinglish, and like all your base are belong yeah, yeah, to us yeah. type language that uh, was written on the document i don't know how I, I i imagine it was fairly high quality but i could not speak to that for sure i have <laughs> no idea that's just my overactive imagination it's just oh you should see a picture of commodore matthew perry sometime he's the most like pompous looking person i've ever seen he has these <laughs> big just like jowls so you can't not many people actually have jowls this dude did oh it's a lot of people have jowl implants <laughs> all the rage these days <laughs> so i mean this was a huge shock to the japanese because they've been practicing isolationism since uh 1635 uh there was a, an edict uh issued called the closed country edict which basically uh we, we talked about restricted things to the dutch and the uh chinese for trade it was basically put in place because they were talking about trading with britain but then found out that britain would rather trade with china who was like so much bigger and so much more resource friendly. Yeah. And they got insulted and were like, fine, we're not trading with anyone then. I mean, that's a very simplified version of it, but oh, of course, there, was yeah. a, there was a lot of that involved. I mean, it's it's kind of touchy to talk about something like national pride when you talk about foreign relations, but it's definitely a thing. People get insulted about things. They well, don't always make rational, like we're not rational actors. Well, we especially make... when you consider that the people who are making the decisions are still people. Yeah, exactly. And even if they're acting in concert with with other people, they're mm -hmm. all still individuals, yeah. and they're going to make decisions that may or may not be in their own best interest, interest based out of things like pride. Absolutely. Pride, emotion, whatever. There's so many reasons that people make uh, uh, decisions other than just, like, stone-cold logic. That does yeah. not factor in as, as often as maybe some of us would like to think it would. It's, <laughs> it, it, we're, we're, just, we're just human. But as so. far as, like, the motivation for this sort of um, isolationism is concerned... Uh, are they not interested in trading beyond the sort of having their pride sort of like mm -hmm. a mark against their pride? Are they also not really feeling as though other societies have anything materially to offer them? They put this policy in place in 1635. No, they did not think that the Europeans had anything worth offering them. But I don't just mean the Europeans, right? I mean, like, they've, they've obviously decided that they want to trade with China mm -hmm. and with the Dutch East India, uh, India Company. Yeah. Um, but, you know, they don't seem to want to trade with anybody else. What is the, what is the rationale behind that? Well, first of all, they, they are still trading with China, but the relationship between China and Japan is incredibly complicated. And Japan as a nation has had to walk a fine line between trading culturally with China in order to gain the, um, the benefits that that offers while protecting themselves from being completely culturally overrun by Chinese culture, which is incredibly predominant and very, very strong, right? So they have to 
figure out how to maintain a distinct identity while still trading with China. So they figured out how to walk that line, right? I feel like they should have a conversation with the CRTC. <laughs> I I could see I could see the lines being drawn there, and like I, the I don't blame you. Yeah, CanCon or something. Yeah, exactly. So, but but I mean that's that's a real issue if you're Japan, you're trying to remain culturally individual. I mean, even more so for Korea, who is like shares a land border with China, right? The fact that Korea uh, exists as a as an independent country at all is frankly miraculous. Um, but they've had to do a lot of the same things where they're taking on Chinese advance or advancements, uh, technolo- technology, education, science, all of this stuff without becoming fully Chinese. They've had there they've managed to maintain a distinct culture, a distinct language, a distinct government. Yeah. So they Japan feels, you know, in 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 the 1600s feels that they can walk that line with China. They know how to bring advancements in as well as uh, innovate on their own without being threatened by China. The Europeans is a completely different matter. Now they know that the Dutch East India Company doesn't care about cultural imperialism. Largely because it's it's a, a corporation. Yeah, they're not, not dealing with not a nation. A national government. Exactly. Yeah. Which is why they're comfortable dealing with them. Yeah. So if they want to trade things with them, fine, let them. Uh, it's a source of wealth for them without very much risk on their end of things. Whereas if you let the Portuguese in, you know that the missionaries are going to fall off. Yeah, because obviously dealing with the West at that time would have largely meant dealing with Christianity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, as, a, as a Chinese obviously found out yes. um, in their dealings with, uh, with the British in particular. Yeah, and I, as I mentioned before, uh, there, there was a big uh, influx of Christianity into Japan, which was very quickly identified as being very attractive and as such uh, a threat to Japanese identity and culture. Yeah. And as a result of that, was very quickly shut down, um, often violently. Uh, just for context again, when was that? This was at the same time as they were closing off trade to the rest of the okay, West. Okay, so in the so early 17th century. In the early 17th century, okay. exactly. So let's get back to Commodore Perry. He, pre- he presents his letter from President Millard Fillmore, who is... I had forgotten was a president. Yeah, he's uh, a, not necessarily one of the uh, consistently ranked in list the, top the, twenty presidents or something. Consistently ranked in the bottom ten presidents of right all on, time. Right on. Oh, Millie Fillmore. <laughs> I know almost nothing about him, and that kind of says a lot. <laughs> uh, tell you what, he he did the um, he did the whole uh, Fugitive Slave Act. So good right job, on. President Fillmore. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Way to go. Uh, that's the kind of guy Fillmore was. I, I mean, he was. There, there are people who will defend him as saying he was trying to maintain the integrity of the union. So but... effectively, he was like the penultimate president before the Civil War. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Pretty much. Um, <laughs> well, see, that's a title that you could go to your grave <laughs> with, and that eclipses everything else you've ever accomplished in your pre- presidential or personal career. Otherwise, Millard Fillmore managed to push off the Civil War for ten years. <laughs> Fabulous. He's... He's kind of like, uh, oh, what's his name? The, uh, the British Prime Minister. Peace in our time. Oh, uh, Neville Chamberlain. <laughs> he's, the, he's the American Neville Chamberlain. I picture him having the exact same voice getting off the airplane. Yeah. Which, of course, you know, existed back mm-hmm. in the 17th century. Sure. We're into the 19th century now. Millard Fillmore and Matthew Perry are in 1853. I know oh, I've been goodness. jumping around We've a little bit. We've been jumping around a lot, haven't we? The problem with the Tokugawa Shogunate is that 
for 250 years, nothing changed. Everything is just a block. There's a weird gap of time in Japanese society where nothing changed. I don't want to say that there were no advancements or anything like that. There absolutely were. But on sort of a macro level, somebody from 1600 could survive fairly comfortably in about 1840, which is really interesting. I don't know whether or not I can call that an accomplishment or not. Well, I mean, you can, it's certainly uh, something worth noting, given that I can't really think of any other context in which, especially in the modern era, where yeah. where that degree of, you know, I'll use the quotes again here, stagnation. And that's uh, the interesting thing. I've been thinking a lot about stagnation lately. I've been thinking about things like uh, the late Roman Empire. I've been thinking about the Byzantine Empire. I've been thinking about, you know, times where, you know, traditionally things are thought of, of, of stagnating. But does which, it follow the same sort of script where there's that sort of like having to put down rebellions and, you know, all these famines, because to me, your description of the Edo period... They're doing uh, okay! Yeah, that seems like they're doing fine. So. And that's why I don't think stagnation necessarily applies And that's why they... I put that in, in the, the scare quotes as well, because I felt like mm-hmm. it wasn't necessarily a just uh, sort of label to apply to the, the, uh, the Edo period. The best I can do is calling it static rather than stagnant. Yeah, I think that probably a lot more fair yeah it's it's just uh, yeah i i think I, I i legitimately do think they came up with a fairly sustainable uh model for society and i think that the fact that they went 250 years with the same model and having it work for them fairly well shows that especially when you consider what's happening to other countries around them yeah in this period of time i mean what's everyone else looking like in 1850 yeah well to have 250 years where you're pretty much at a standstill is arguably not a huge concern if that's sort of what everybody else is up to. But if the context from which you've locked yourself out of, mm-hmm. uh, which is essentially what they've done with their isolationist policy, if that's changed quite dramatically as it did in those 250 years. Yeah. So what they're looking at in, in 1853, I mean, let's let's do a bit of a rundown. Is India looking great? Nope. No. Is China having a good time? Uh, it's going to be having a worse time. It's going to be having a worse time very shortly. <laughs> hey, those like seven or 12 years are, uh, yeah. In, in, in a large sense, we're in opium war territory. Yeah. We're, we're not having a great time over in China. Philippines? Malaysia? Thailand? No, none of these people are having a good time. Well, I mean, we're also only, what, 17 years before the scramble for Africa? Mm-hmm. Something around there. My yeah. my dates are bad. It's eighteen eighties. I can't remember what what year it was, but yeah, well, um, we're, that's ultimately opening. Yeah, we're talking eighteen fifty three here, but yeah, yeah. I mean, we're 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 smack dab in the middle of the the age of uh, economic imperialism. Yeah. Um, in terms of the West, so I, I mean, if I was Japan, I probably wouldn't want to let Western Westerners in either. I I can see how they're looking at that and going, well, we could let them in and hope to benefit from this but literally no one has managed to do that yeah i i can i can see where that line of thinking is coming from until perry sails into edo harbor blows up a couple of buildings just for good measure ever heard of gunboat diplomacy yes i sure have this is like a prime example in that they actually used gunboats for their diplomacy. There you go. Um, it's almost as though it was like crafted specifically <laughs> for that context. Perry comes back a year later. Basically what he wanted to do was 
give them time to translate the document, make sure everything was good, let them think it over, and then come back with a treaty and be like, sign this. Yeah. So the problem being that the West didn't really understand that, re- that, that relationship that we were talking about earlier between the shogun and the, the emperor. Because when it comes to something like, I don't know, asking for levies from your daimyos, that the shogun can do no problem. When it comes to a change in policy as drastic as opening trade to the West, the shogun isn't really the top person. That's not really an issue because they do have that authority to to administrate, right? Yeah. But as far as the West was concerned, the shogun basically seemed like uh, they were the head of the government. For all intents and purposes, that's, that's the guy you want to be talking to, right? The shogunate was a little bit blindsided by all the stuff that had just happened, you know, with the blowing up of the buildings and all. And they decided, like, okay, we're going to open a couple ports in, like, a really limited context. Not necessarily to trade, but if ships are coming through, we'll provide them with, you know, provisions and, uh, um, and some aid, things like that. They opened up uh, five different ports. Um, they also, shortly thereafter, um, opened a consulate in a, in a city called Shimoda. Um, which was basically all that the West wanted really was to like get get a consulate in there yeah start diplomatic relations because once you kind of get that foot in the door you can get a little bit further right Um, this led to what's known as the Harris Treaty in 1858 which was very similar to other unequal treaties in the East at this point in time the unequal treaties were like there isn't one definition of an unequal treaty but generally were categorized by things like giving um, citizens of one country basically diplomatic immunity anytime that they're in in that particular country so they can't really commit crimes extremely favorable trade rates yes um, uh, often asking them to exclude other countries from trading um, things like that which are really really bad for one side hence the name unequal treaties uh, it's it's kind of right there but it, it was it was basically a textbook unequal treaty for anything that any of the other countries are doing with China or India at this point in time. Mm-hmm. They opened up a few more ports that were actually for trade rather than just for provisions, and they started uh, across Pacific trade. Very very limited capacity, but other nations followed really quickly thereafter that had a better infrastructure for trading in the area. So Britain got in, Russia got in, which was a big one. For Russia, anyways, uh, the French all got in. They within all, the next several years, within the mean, next couple or? of years, yeah, yeah, before 1860, all of these countries That's were now, impressive. yeah, they they all got their foot in the door into Japan. This sparked a massive debate within Japan, which makes a lot of sense—a debate between isolationism and sort of uh, the opening of of Japan, because a lot of people are going, listen we've been good for 250 years how do we expect this to go well especially considering what's happened to other countries it's a reasonable point of view the other side going listen that dude just sailed into our harbor with four ships and just like wrecked us he blew up a bunch of buildings we could do nothing to defend ourselves we they, they built fortifications in the year that he had gone away. He came back with eight ships they still probably couldn't have stopped him if he had he had decided to use force yeah. There was, there was no chance. They had basically forgotten how to use gunpowder effectively. They had no gunsmiths. They had no one making cannons. They were making cannons out of wood. Yeah. Which is doable. I don't want to make it sound like super bad. 
But it's pretty bad. Mediocre bad. It's 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 not great. <laughs> I mean, this is a society where the, the the ultimate symbol of the samurai of the ruling class is the uh, the right to wear two swords in in public. The the katana and the wazakashi. It's you know everybody loves their samurai swords and whatnot in today's culture. But like that was a right that was it it, it was seen as the pinnacle of of. Uh, military power in yeah. Japan was the, the the right to wear these swords, and this dude sails in and he's got a steam powered ship that's 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 shelling them with explosive shells. They have no chance and they know it. And even the people who are trying to cling cling to traditionalism, they they do know it. Like there's no one that's really they don't have any any um, delusions about the situation. They know they're in trouble. Their best bet is hoping to legally keep them from trading with Japan and hoping for the best, basically, uh, on the traditionalist side. It's something to think about, too, is that, like, I think most of your listeners will have a similar experience with what isolationism means Mm -hmm. that that I would, not being very familiar with with Japan, and and thinking sort of 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 isolationism so far as it pertains to the United States. Mm -hmm. And, you know, listening to that story... It's really interesting sort of thinking about how different the threat to their isolationism was versus the threat to American isolationism. Yeah, when you look uh, at the Monroe the Doctrine. Yeah, when you look at the Monroe Doctrine, it's not it's a, it's a it's a personal choice and it's one that protects the the United States from uh, from foreign issues through, you know, basically what Switzerland is doing now, which is basically saying don't don't bother us about this. This is your own problem, not ours. We're not helping anyone. Whereas Japan is literally trying to keep the outside world out, you know, exactly. the, the, the the U.S. isolationism was only a matter of warfare, you know, they were they were really trying to just stay out of conflict, whereas Japan is trying to keep the entire world out because they feel like they've attained a level of society that is ideal for them. Not to mention too that from like an economic perspective, Japan seemingly has minimal to potentially no interest in sort of like outside economic treaties with other parties whereas the united states on sort of like the economic front is very interested in uh sort of establishing uh, its own sphere of influence Mm -hmm. in what is traditionally latin america Mm -hmm. which they sort of term quote theirs Mm -hmm. uh, which is quite interesting and problematic at the same time that's a a whole different episode (laughs) yeah not to mention the fact as well that like the united states was completely dependent on immigration from Europe and other parts of the world, mm-hmm. whereas that I can only presume would have been frowned upon at the utmost um, yeah. by Japan in this period. Yeah, and I mean, it, it's it's one of the problems that always comes up any any place that you talk about history. But like, I, I, I hesitate to talk about the Edo period as being too idealistic. I mean, it had a lot of problems when you when you look at it in a modern context, and one of them is is a, a strong xenophobia. Yeah, you know, there's there's very much a, a movement to to keep Japan pure, which is, you know, kind of leaves a bit of a bad taste in your mouth when you when you talk about it today. But, you know, within within the context of what else is going on in in Asia at this point in time, I can see where that where the seed of that kind of germinated from. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I think that's a completely <laughs> different type of xenophobia than, for example, looking at, oof, I mean, this is controversial, but mm-hmm. as a Quebecer, I, I hesitate to say this, but I mean, looking at, <laughs> at Quebec right now, right? And yep. looking at the difficulties it's having with trying to maintain its culture. And we could argue that the the position you took earlier about Japan trying to maintain its identity uh, when compared to China mm-hmm. is very similar 
to to Canada and the United States, which is why I made that sort of offhand remark about CanCon. Sure. Uh, likewise, the same is true about Quebec and Quebec trying to maintain its identity. And whether that's a social identity, whether it's a linguistic identity, whatever identity that happens to be, that manifests itself in relatively xenophobic ways. Whereas I, I don't know, I mean, I don't know much about Japan, but to me that it didn't seem like it, there was any intent to be xenophobic. The intent to me appears to be purely um, out of, uh, you know, self-sustenance and attend, uh, attempting to uh, foster a functional society free of the sort of like ravenous Western imperial powers sure. that are coming in to sort of open everybody up and take them for whatever they're worth. Well, yeah, and, and anytime something like this comes up, I mean, it's... There's there's two there's two very different ways of looking at it, and there's certainly degrees of each each way of looking at it. And you're going to start to see some of that manifest differently as we go on with the with the story a little bit. I'm um, excited. But uh, <laughs> yeah, nothing gets you excited like xenophobia. <laughs> <laughs> well, everybody who knows me knows that, of course. <laughs> oh, sorry, that was unfair. <laughs> but uh, th- yeah, you will you will see that start to change where it goes from. Um, trying to prevent any foreigners from entering the country to sort of this narrative of Japanese uh, national as well as ethnic superiority, which, again, is kind of a natural progression when you, when you, when you really examine where it's coming from, which doesn't you know, excuse or condone it at all. But it's, it's, it, you know, when, when you follow the path, a lot of these things become a lot more understandable than, uh, than they, they can kind of seem out of context or at first, first blush. So that's, that's not really news to most people, but it's, it's, worth, it's worth mentioning. Absolutely. Um, because there are very few periods of history that we can talk about where we don't have to throw disclaimers around left, right, and center when we're making judgment calls. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, that's, that's just the nature of history. But anyways, the Shogunate was seen by a lot of pa- parties as really weak for the way that they ended up handling the uh, Perry crisis. Are you talking about internally or externally? Internally. Within Japan, because... <laughs> I, you know, with this with this whole debate between isolationism and traditionalism versus you know the potential uh, benefits of opening up, people are looking at the shogun being like, "What? You know, we've been cut off from the world for 250 years. What are you doing, just like letting these foreigners in?" And it really like the Tokugawa family and the shogunate as an institution really took a, a hit to their reputation and to the confidence of the people in their ability to rule specifically because of their their handling of this one issue with the United States and the fall you know the fallout of it with with Britain and with Russia and with France coming in afterwards but their hands were so tied i mean is i, I mean, a historical question to ask about that i mean how how fair is that uh for other other uh you know sections of Japanese society at the time. I would say to... completely unfair. They had a gun to their head. What are they going to do? Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah, I, I I would agree with you on that one. There wasn't there wasn't a lot else they could have done. But it doesn't excuse sort of the sentiment that you know other segments of the society would be keen on 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 sharing, especially if other people are frustrated with the system in general. Whoever whoever which way it happens to disadvantage them. Well, I mean, what do we depend on our governments for? Yeah, well, protection. Presumably. Protection is the is is the main one I'm 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 thinking of here, and and the shogun failed to protect his society from uh, encroachment by economic uh, imperialism from the West. So you did mention earlier that that there'd been some effort to sort of like redouble defense mm-hmm. in in the harbor. Yeah, uh, I presume that that was sort of like one angle of handling the situation was there must have been some pressure to be like. 
we have to protect ourselves at least somewhat more than we already are. And then the other segment sort of trying to look at how do we actually deal with the situation as it worthwhile opening up. I feel like there must have been a significant sort of divide down the middle in terms of how best to deal with the issue, which of course led them down two paths at the same time. Imagine a flying saucer came out of the sky tomorrow. Yeah. And said, we want to trade with you and then blew up Arkansas. Just, it's gone now. So other than people from Arkansas... I picked a random geographical location. How would we How would we deal with that? I have nothing against Arkansas in particular. It was the first thing that came to my mind. How do we deal with that? Are we going to accept their demands? Probably. Would people stand by as our governments did nothing to mobilize militaries? Absolutely not. It's the exact same yeah, response. Yeah, you, you'd have the same response where there'd be sort of like, hey, let's negotiate. Hey, let's kick their asses. And then you have them both sort of at the same time. Because you can't ignore the fact that what Perry did was essentially an act of war. He was acting in a capacity as a U.S. naval officer when he destroyed buildings in Edo Harbor. That's, if that's not an act of war, I don't know what is. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's indisputable. Not to mention the fact that the letter that came from the president had an active threat in it, which was if you don't sign a treaty with us, we're going to attack you some more. Like, you have to prepare for war. But they couldn't. They, they started preparing and realized we don't have the capacity to defend ourselves from these people. So that's why you see that split response. I mean, you know, the, the, the fact that the, daimyos, or that the shogun was seen as, as weak is really not the fault of, uh, of the shogunate itself, uh, the fault of that institution itself. Yeah. But what it did was sort of gave some segments of society that were having issues an opportunity to act on those because for the first time in 250 years, the shogunate looked weak. Yeah. So this weird thing happened with way back in the 17th century when this was all established, right? I mentioned a war of unification. You can't have a war of unification without having a couple sides within the, the country, right? It's a civil war. Well, a war of unification would presume that at some point there was some disunification. <laughs> The, show, uh, the, the daimyos who had traditionally sided with uh, the Tokugawa family in that war were generally favored with really high uh, government positions. They were the people that were getting council positions and things like that. Yeah. Then there was a larger group of people that, or of, of daimyos that had been allied with that side, but not necessarily like ardent supporters, like direct supporters of the Tokugawa family. And they tended to do just fine. They were fine. And then there were what they called the outer houses, which were these daimyos, mainly from the west uh, section of Japan, that had been fighting the Tokugawa's back in the 15th century. Yeah. They tended to get as little as possible based on their social standings. They were lords, but they were not getting good government jobs. They were not getting the best uh, opportunities in terms of economic uh, opportunities, things like that. They were treated poorly. And they were treated poorly for the duration of this Tokugawa shogunate. Which, as far as things to keep static, that feels like a poor one to me. But that's that, there's some massive 2020 hindsight going on there. <laughs> that's very unfair for me to really judge. All of these people that were considered outer houses basically said... We can't trust the shogunate anymore. We feel that the only person who is actually capable of ruling this country is the emperor. 
now you see this breakdown in the the technical difference between the shogunate and the emperor because there are daimyos that are saying okay so the shogunate negotiated with the americans fine but the shogunate is not the emperor and the emperor did not say that this is okay so all of these traditionalists and all of these outer houses and anyone that was opposed to the shogunate or to the opening of Japan drifted towards the imperial house and started giving it more power than it really ever had. Interesting. So almost since, like... Since like the 1200s. Yeah. So like the idea of like finding this technicality as an out mm-hmm. breeds sort of like new identity politics and breeds that yeah, revival... Yeah, yeah to to you know to reinstate the the meiji exactly so i mean there were other issues within the society i i again i i presented tokugawa shogun as being like fairly stable there were things like the way that the the samurai were paid was like as a set percentage which didn't account for inflation at all so while merchants were creating more and more wealth for themselves the the the, the samurai were not being paid any more within the society than they had been in 1650 or 1600. So they were becoming comparably poorer and poorer than other classes, which is difficult when you're trying to maintain a caste society where you're trying to visually express wealth based on your caste. Yes, but most presumably for that top class that has the largest burden mm-hmm. in terms of presenting itself as wealthy. Exactly. So, you know, major economic imbalance there. Because of the isolation, there there was a major technical or a technological gap between Japan and the West. I mean, you know, we already talked about the the, the West in the West in 1635 was not that formidable to Japan technologically speaking. The West in 1850, completely different story. The amount that they overtook, um, just from a scientific and technological standpoint, the amount that they overtook Japan was just you know unreal. And there were a lot of people that looked at that as as a major problem. Uh, for the society, they were now critical of the things that they once upheld as being virtues. There were also a couple of famines in and around this time, which never really helped things. Yeah. It wasn't the cause, uh, it, it wasn't the fault of the government at all, but hunger tends to make people restless. Well, when you already have, you know, such a strong, reasonable outlet for dissent, mm-hmm. and then people, you know, find something like a, like a famine or whatever, uh, you know, to be able to sort of like add into the mix... It never bodes well. Interestingly enough, there was an earthquake in Shimoda, which is where that U.S. consulate was placed. Uh, as soon as it was confirmed, like a couple days later, there was an earthquake in Shimoda, which people saw as a very bad omen. <laughs> so that really kind of helped push people in sort of the traditionalist way. Interesting. Um, they saw it as a, very much as a sign. So, I mean, there was this all sort of created a lot of inner turmoil within Japan, which is, you know, kind of like I said earlier, what I'd like to focus on as much as possible. But what you saw was a direct backlash against foreigners. They were seen as a problem, much as you would see in the Boxer Rebellion later in China, right? Yeah. Where it, it, uh, the, the foreigners that come in are seen as the source of all of the country's problems, whether or not it was the fault of the foreigners. Um, and in a lot of cases was but i mean a famine isn't really the fault of the united states for coming in and wanting to trade yeah exactly you know but again it does it it does act as that outlet exactly and regardless of things are directly or indirectly or not at all right uh, relevant seems to be you know of minimal consequence so you get things like the uh the minister who signed the harris treaty was actually assassinated in 1860 by pro-isolationist uh activists the U.S. legation in Edo was actually burned to the ground in 1863 by agitators. 
So there's a lot of like uh, internal unrest. Japanese gold was devalued like significantly compared to the rest of the world. So as soon as the ports were opened up, there was a massive rush on Japanese gold, which kind of crippled them economically a little bit. Yeah. They were trading against silver at about uh, a one to five ratio, where the rest of the world was trading at about a one to 15 ratio at this point in time. So basically people would come in with silver and buy, like, like they would take their gold, they would buy a bunch of silver at one to 15, go to Japan, buy gold at one to five, and they just tripled their, their initial gold yeah, without any problems. It's insane. So there was a complete uh, rehaul of the of the um, the currency at this point in time, which is really devastating to society. It's really hard to go through that. And then the emperor, <clears throat> Emperor Kome, comes out and he basically does the first political thing that the Japanese emperor has done in centuries. And he issues issues the order to expel the barbarians on March eleventh of eighteen sixty three. This is such a powder keg for what's going on right now because you have like before this you had people who were supporting the shogunate and what they were trying to do to kind of ease the 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 pain of 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 being opened by the united states because there's really little choice and then you had traditionalists who were saying like well this is what the emperor would want us to do without actually having any official support yeah and kind of easily dismissed by the legitimate power that is the shogunate then the emperor comes out and says no get rid of all the foreigners and it's just this rallying cry for all the traditionalists all the isolationists who say this emperor knows what's going on like we need to listen to him he's the real power he's the one that uh, appoints the shogun in the first place this is perfect this is what we needed which you know effectively amounts to civil war i mean it wasn't you know we're not talking about like outbreaks of like armies fighting armies yet yet um but it was basically it, it basically tore japanese society in half uh, it's interesting that you start talking about that because the question that i'm thinking about is i mean looking at looking at the emperor's decision mm-hmm. i i can't help but wonder to what degree is this informed by the fact that at that time the united states was in its own civil war and would have had significantly reduced capacities uh, to be able to, you know, enforce whatever type of you know trade deal they negotiated with Japan. That was absolutely a factor because the foreign powers that they're dealing with is mostly British and French at this point in time. Uh, the United States is so wrapped up in the Civil War, which 1860 to 1865, you know, they're not, they don't care about Japan in mm-hmm. this little block of time. It's not a major, it's not a pressing issue for them. So yeah, the, it, it, if, if he was going to make that, declaration that was the time to do it that was the safest time for him to do it now there was an intervention by those european powers to try and like quell some of the uprisings there was a little bit of american intervention but practically none they were way too busy with their own stuff Uh, i don't want to get into all the little battles and stuff but let's kind of hit the bullet points on this stuff instead it gets really tedious uh november 1865 so a little over two years later uh the emperor agrees officially to allow the shogun to negotiate treaties on his behalf and ratifies the Harris Treaty. The intervention by uh, foreign powers was going well enough that he felt that he was being threatened by it. And besides, we still just can't ignore the technological gap that's happening here. Uh, You can't 
fight against machine guns when you know you're working with bows and arrows and spears and swords doesn't work yeah a couple more uh you know basically what came of it was that the harris treaties were ratified but even more favorable terms for the west which is kind of how our operations work and i mean the fact that they were forced to give reparations makes very little sense seeing as those western powers were intervening in a domestic dispute but that's also kind of how unequal treaties work precisely yeah you know and also how attitudes would have worked regarding eastern countries Mm -hmm. um, and how france and the united states and the united kingdom would view a country like japan at the time yeah absolutely then in 1867 emperor komei dies and his actually his second son is installed as emperor japan didn't always go like first son for for every succession and this is Emperor Meiji. He didn't take that name until later on because uh, Japanese emperors have like four or five different names. Like there's a bunch of different ma- names depending on the period of life. They choose names for themselves. Often before this period, emperors would have a couple of different names depending on like which period of rule they were in. So if you were emperor and then war broke out, you might be, you know, this type of emperor during that war. And afterwards you might be you know, a name yeah. that amounts to the conquering emperor or, you know, it, it was, it, it's very ceremonial what you end up being known as. Uh, we should technically be talking about uh, Komei as the Komei emperor, officially speaking. He had another personal name that is just never used officially. So the the emperor that we know as Meiji, the Meiji emperor, took the throne in 1867. He was a teenager. He was very, very young. He was also very much influenced by these sort of Western uh, daimyos that were fighting against the shogun because they were supportive of him, which is the kind of thing that goes to your head when you're a teenager. And I mean, I don't, I don't want to be too reductionist about that, but often in history, when you look at young rulers, you see a lot of influence in their early years that often stretches throughout their rule. Well, especially when it's self-serving. Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, they're, they're just people. Any of us would have that go to our heads. That's just human nature. Then we get into what's known as the Boshin War, which is 1868 to 1869. This, you ever see The Last Samurai? Don't bother, man. It's, that, that one was bad enough that it makes me a little angry to watch. I know people who enjoy it for reasons that I can understand. There are enough things that bother me about that movie that... and. That, that, that I know you wouldn't like it, specifically. Oh, well. Yeah, I, I really don't think so. Historical inaccuracies generally tend to bother me. Uh, it's um, not just that. But... It's also um, Tom Cruise coming in to save the backwards Japanese from themselves. Oh, well, see, that's absolutely wonderful. Thank you, Tom Cruise. Yep, thank you, Whatever Tom Cruise, would, for everything. Whatever would Japanese people have done without him? That's what I want to know. The, the wild thing about it is that they even make the connections within the movie of Tom Cruise appropriating Native American culture. <laughs> he, his character does so within the movie and then takes the concepts he learns from that in learning to relate to the Japanese people. It's, it's a disaster. Seemingly no end to cultural appropriation. That's great. <laughs> so anyways, don't go watch that. But it basically takes place within this period of fighting because basically what ends up happening is this is, this is the actual civil war between shogun supporters and emperor supporters. And it seemed that there were enough emperor supporters that the, the shogun abdicated the, the shogunate, hoping for mercy. Um, the imperial house said, actually, we are going to... Uh, strike your family from the list of nobles and you're not even going to be a daimyo anymore let alone a shogun having nothing to lose 
Tokugawa marched on Kyoto, where the imperial residence was, tried to take the imperial palace there, but they were defeated in that final rush, and then Edo was captured by the imperial forces. Tokugawa was allowed to remain on as a daimyo, but like a very like low-level daimyo. Like yeah. he was next to nothing after that. As, as low as he could really be brought under the four-class system. This right here, this what is happening now, is the restoration. It is the restoration of imperial rule over Japan. The, the emperor was enjoying a direct sort of sovereignty over the nation of Japan that he hadn't enjoyed for nearly a thousand years. He moved the capital to Edo, which he renamed Tokyo, which means Eastern Capital. And this is the this is the moment when the Japan that we're going to talk about modernizing the Japan that becomes a major world power, the Japan that participates in the Second World War, all of that. This is the moment where that Japan is first born. Right. So that is the ending of the Edo period. And we're just sort of kind of getting started on the restoration. But I think that's a really good place to stop for right now, um, take a break, and next time we'll talk about what exactly the restoration means other than just the emperor coming back. Like, what happened to Japan? What changed? What became um, What became of this whole system that we've just broken down? Awesome. Great. The forced interaction with the West in the 1850s served as a catalyst that broke down a system that had been extremely steady in Japan for over 250 years. Once that contact occurred, though, the genie was out of the bottle. There was no way of moving forward without accounting for the ways the world had changed around them. Next time on HI101, we'll look at how they not only accepted this challenge, but embraced it with an enthusiasm for advancement that is almost unbelievable. That episode will be up on May 15th. As the format of this show inevitably leads to factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections posted there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, I encourage you to look for more information. It only gets better from here. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101.